I'm going to be reading from Genesis 3. You don't have to follow along, you can just listen. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The question that probably comes to a lot of our minds when we hear this story, and we've probably heard it plenty of times if we've grown up in church, and and even if we haven't, I mean, it's the famous story of Adam and Eve. But the question that probably comes to mind is, why did Eve eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil? Why did she do it? And then sometimes the follow-up questions are kind of a distraction, really, from the purpose of what's going on. Some of the follow-up questions tend to be, well, why did God allow Satan to tempt them? Doesn't that make God ultimately kind of responsible for this? I mean, he put Satan in the garden. Why did God put the tree there anyway? But the real answer to this question of why did Eve eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil is actually told to us in verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes. And the tree was desirable to make one wise. It's because their desire, the desire for Adam and Eve, to be like God was greater than their desire for God Himself. And as we see in the rest of this chapter, both Adam and Eve justify their actions by trying to put the blame on something or someone else. What do you desire more than God? What are the cravings that you have deep down that are calling for your obedience? Maybe it's a craving, an idol that only you and God know about. Do we try to justify the sins that we give into? Well, if God wanted me to, to not do this, then He shouldn't have put the tree here. Or perhaps we try to blame God. Why did you give me these desires? Why did you lead me into temptation? Going through the book of James, the challenge for us as well as for the original audience, is to ask, 
who it is that we truly serve, right? This is kind of this litmus test for the entire book of James. It's asking ourselves, where does our allegiance lie? Who do we serve? Who are we truly a child of? Are we really a child of God or are we still a, a servant or a child of this fallen world? And how we deal with the issue of temptation is a major part of answering this question. So the big idea this morning is that the true child of God needs to be able to discern good gifts from evil enticements. It's nice and long. It's almost like a Puritan title for the sermon. And as the beard gets longer, the Puritan titles will increase and In other words, though, we have to be able, if we are children of God, we have to be able to discern what is from the Lord and what is from our selfish desires, right? So let's pray together, and then we are going to turn back to our passage in James. James chapter 1, and we'll be starting in verse 13. Heavenly Father, We pray this morning, God, that you would uh, speak through me, Lord. It feels like there's a lot to go through this morning, and of course there's the burden of desiring for your Spirit to work through me and for the text to be preached well, for your glory and honor, Lord. I pray, God, that as we continue through this book of James, that we would be examining ourselves to see if we are truly saved, if we are truly born again children of the Most High God. I pray, God, that we would not rest on any one profession of faith that we may have made in a moment. I pray that we would not rest on the faith of our family members. I pray, Lord, that we would not rest in just what other people have told us we are or are not, Lord, but that we would examine our hearts before You, God, and before Your Holy Word, and let Your Word speak to us and show us what needs to change, what needs to to grow. Lord, that each and every one of us would be firm, that we would know whom we belong to, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So James, starting in verse 13, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. He says, No one who is being tested shall say, I am being tempted by God. For God is without temptation from evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Each person, when he is tempted, is lured away and enticed by his own desires. Then the desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, at its completion, gives birth to death. We have another slide here. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, from whom there is no change or shadow of turning. 
By his own decision, he gave birth to us by the word of truth, so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Amen. For those of you who don't know, this is off the board here, right? but for those of you who don't know, I tend to always have issues with like engines and technology. So it just, it almost makes me laugh that, of course, when I'm up here, I click and I have to click three times to get it to go. <laughs> the first thing we have to answer this morning is what is temptation? Right, James says, no one who's being te- tested shall say, I am being tempted by God, for God is without temptation from evil. And he himself tempts no one. See, trials come from God. Temptation, as we'll see, comes from within. Trials come from God. All right, trials from God. Temptation from within. James is still continuing his earlier point as he's discussing having joy in trials. And how do we handle these trials? One of the things that we have to be aware of and that James wants his audience to be aware of is that when we face trials from God, we will inevitably face temptation. And it's easy to try to blame God for both. The trial comes from God, though. The temptation comes from within. Now, interestingly enough, the same word, which is perazo, is used... But it's used in a different purpose depending on the agent. So the word is actually different depending on who it's being used by or who it's coming by. And, and, and this is not foreign to other texts in Scripture. We see the same thing, or something similar at least, in Genesis 50, verses 15 through 20. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full? For all the wrong which we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged us before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. For am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So the same word is used there. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He didn't have to take it and then rework it and then figure out what to do with it. They had one intention in what they did, and God had a completely different and opposite intention and using what they did for good. Similarly, we see this in Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The same word is used in verse 8, but this time it's calamity translated. The Hebrew word is ra'ah. And then in chapter 3, it's used again. But this time, instead of Nineveh, it's God who uses it. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned 
from their wicked ways. They had turned from their, the word is ra'ah, they have turned from their wicked ways. God relented concerning the calamity or ra'ah which he declared he would bring upon them and he did not do it. So what we see is that the meaning of, the, of, of words sometimes are heavenly dependent on who is responsible for using it. So from Nineveh, it was a wickedness that came up before the face of God. To the mariners or the sailors, it was a trial. This calamity, this storm that was brought upon by God, there was a trial. And then finally, from God himself, he relented of his calamity, same word, that he was going to bring upon the people. So it's interesting if we look at something like Jonah, that when the people do wickedness, or ra'ah, right, God responds to correct it with his own ra'ah. But from him, it's holy, it's perfect, it's correcting. From people, it's vile and wicked. Now, the reason I bring that up is because we actually see the exact same thing here in the book of James. The word is temptation and trial. It's the same word in Greek. But when the agent is God, it's a trial. He is correcting. He is refining. He is creating steadfastness in the believer. But the response from the believer is the same word from, the desire, from our desires creates temptation. We don't create trials to correct and make people more steadfast. God does that. So just like in Jonah, it depends on who the agent is. And the reason why this is important is because James is making this transition now from trials into temptation. So we have to understand the difference there because trials come from the Lord in order to correct and create steadfastness, right? But the temptation that James brings up does not come from God. And he makes that adamantly clear. I am being, do not say when you are being tested, right, same word, I am being tempted by God. For God is without temptation and he himself tempts no one. Every trial that God brings carries internal temptations. And here's some examples of that. If we have a trial in our life where we say lose our job, the temptation may be to get angry or get depressed or to become self-sufficient or to just give up. Or when we have the trial of a sudden death of a loved one, the temptation be, can be in tragedy to question God's goodness or if there's even a God at all. I had a professor at Moody, and we were talking about God's sovereignty in uh, one of our classes, and he said, you need to build a correct theology and believe it of God's sovereignty because the time to do that is now, not when you're in the trial. When you're in the trial, if you have not already built a firm trust in God, when the trial comes, you will flee. The trial is not the time to start learning about how God is sovereign. We need to build that reality now so that when the trial comes, we can joyfully trust in the sovereignty of God in the trial. And to build the foundation that has already been built. How about when you are really trying to change your life 
And it's like everything around you seems against you. When you're really trying to turn over a new leaf, when you're really trying to get out of a sin habit or a destructive pattern in your life, and it seems like you're always around annoying roommates or can only find a low-paying job or there's too many rules to follow or people are treating you unfairly or you feel disrespected and slighted. And the temptation is, I need an escape. I need some rest. The temptation to go back to the familiarity of home or our old lives. The temptation for just one more hit, for just one more drink, for just one more click on that picture or video, for just one more donut or one more harmless fantasy or just buying one more new thing for the home. Thanks, Tamer. <laughs> the main temptation that we can categorize all of these under, the main temptation when we face trials will be the temptation that lead us away from the joy of the Lord. The temptation that take us away from our joy and the sufficiency of God and to find joy in the world instead. But God never seeks to induce sin. He never seeks to destroy faith. So temptations in this context cannot be rightly attributed to God. James makes this distinction clear. His concern is for his readers to be aware of and and resist the temptation that comes in trials. You will, when you face a trial, you will face a temptation to find joy and sufficiency in something else other than God. Or to circumvent the trial. That will be the temptation. And it can manifest itself in a number of different ways, in a number of different sin patterns, but the temptation will always be, in trials, to look somewhere else for satisfaction or rest or peace. So James says, he just doubles down on this point, God is without temptation, and he himself tempts no one. So now let's define it. What is temptation then? Well, it's the impulse to sin, the tugging of our most base desires. But God does not have these base desires because He is complete within Himself. There is nothing outside of Him that He would want or need because He is whole. He is triune. He is complete. He is holy and perfect. In fact, the only picture we have of God dealing with temptation is when, when the son leaves his lofty and rightful position in order to take the form of a man and wrestle with weakness. And even then, the temptations he faced in the wilderness were quickly to quickly get back to the things that already rightfully belonged to him. This does not mean that God is now open to temptation, but what it means is that God allowed himself to suffer and withstand the weakness of men in order that he may be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. But what temptation does is it pulls us toward satisfaction and fulfillment in something other than God. So of course God doesn't tempt us then because God's purposes are to draw us closer to himself, not push us further away. 
Therefore, anything that is seeking to pull you away from God or to circumvent His purposes or to give you allegiance to something, anything other than Christ, this is temptation. And it's not from the Lord. But is temptation in itself sinful? I don't think that base temptations, right, at at, at its foundational level, this idea of temptation, I do not believe that it is sinful. However, I want us to kind of uh, sit on this idea for a second. What is true temptation? Because I think for a lot of us, what we may call temptation might actually be already us giving in to temptation. It might actually be us already giving in to desires and I want to tackle this question in our next point. So we have next is the process of temptation. Each person, when he is tempted, is lured away and enticed by his own desires. Then the desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, at its completion, gives birth to death. So the first thing in this process is we are lured away and enticed by our own desires. See, temptation is not sinful. But our own desires are. Our desires are sinful because they're fleshly. Which is why the Bible tells us that our desires need to be conformed to the desires of God. Why does it need to be conformed? Because it's not natural for us. Our natural desires are wicked. If they are not the desires of God, then they are sinful. God even says that every inclination of man's heart, which would be his desires, is evil. And many times, if not most of the time, the temptations we face are actually, I want you to hear me on this, this is, most of the time, the temptations that we face are actually the fruit of sinful desires that we have previously indulged in. Let me parse that out for us a bit here. Let's say you give in to the temptation to lie because you did something wrong and you don't want to deal with the consequences. But then, in order to keep that lie going, you have to tell another lie. And then you're tempted to tell another lie. And then you're tempted to tell another lie. And then a lie. And then another temptation to lie. And the lies get bigger and the temptations get stronger. Those temptations to continue to lie are actually just the fruit of the first lie. And the temptations of the first lie is really just the fruit of some wicked desire that you had given into previously. So this is what it means. when Sometimes we need to, we need to stop and, and take a second and, and recognize that the temptations that we face are a lot of times the result of sins and desires that we have already given into that are now, these temptations are arising because we had already given into it in the first place. And they bloom into new temptations. So maybe the desire started with something like giving into a thought or an idea. And because you dwelt on that thought and you allowed it to linger, then it grew into acting on that thought. Then the temptation grew. Then there's another temptation and another and another. And then all of a sudden you find yourself 
down the line, tempted to do something that a few months or a few years ago you could have never imagined yourself being even towing the line to do. That's how temptation works. So we're lured and enticed by our own desires, and then it says, James says that our desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. When we sin, we have nobody to blame but ourselves. The devil didn't make you do it. God certainly didn't make you do it. James is clear that this inclination, this excitement towards sin comes from within ourselves. It's, it's from inside. It's from our own desires. And the majority of us, myself included, might be surprised when we stand before God and a lot of the things that we consider temptations are actually only there because we had already started down this spiral of giving in to our base and wicked desires. So when that initial thought comes to your mind, we have a responsibility to do two things. First, we must take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10. And then he also says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So we must first take every thought captive, right? When that thought comes in, you need to take it captive before that temptation grows and that desire lingers. But then he says, we, then Paul says, we must recognize and believe that God has provided a way out. You have to take the thought captive and you have to trust that the Lord has provided a way out of this temptation. That you do not, as a child of God, have to give in to this thought before it grows. So that's the first thing. We, we, have, we have an action point here that we have, to, we have to do when a thought comes into our mind. But the second thing is we also need to become aware of where this temptation is coming from. Is it new? Can you tell that this temptation only arose because of something that you had given into previously? Is it, a, is it a sin that we've previously indulged in? See, we have gone, for many of us, or for all of us, I should say, we have gone beyond our base desires and we have created a world where our temptations arrive because we have built a life where we said, gimme, 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 and I want, I want, I want. And we have built such a pattern and a habit of doing that all our lives. And so now the temptation, quite frankly, is we are reaping what we have sown for so long. So even in trials that come from God, the temptation comes from our own desires because we are selfish. And our flesh thinks that we are the center of the universe. So I shouldn't have to go through this trial. And then he says, and sin gives birth to death at its fullness. 
When we give in to our temptations, the result is sin. And at its fullness or completion, we destroy ourselves. We may not destroy ourselves in a way that is public for everybody to see. Some of us, we destroy ourselves very clearly. And quite frankly, for many of us, it's by the grace of God that that happened in order that we could wake up. But for some of us, we're just quietly destroying ourselves, thinking that we're fine, and the people around us are none the wiser. But the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And when Adam gave in to his desires, the punishment was death. So I think we need to be careful when we look at something like temptation to just give the quick and unthoughtful answer of, well, temptations aren't sinful until you act on them. Because it can be unhelpful and even harmful for those struggling with sin strongholds and blind spots. Why? Because it paints a picture of temptation that is neutral. It paints a picture of temptation that is really one-dimensional. And really what it does is it takes our culpability out of the equation and makes us victims to our own wicked desires. And so we think that our wicked desires aren't actually our fault. We were just made this way. Which, by the way, is a form of blaming God. Now let me tell you, the, the reason why this is sinful and dangerous is because what we'll end up doing is two things. We will think that temptation can never be conquered because it's just part of who we are. We're just always going to have to deal with this. It's always going to be a part of me. And that unfortunately leads into the second thing which is many of us will then inadvertently make that temptation part of our identity. When the temptation we think is just part of who we are and what we're going to have to deal with, what we do is we we make it part of our identity. And when we do that, by the way, it means we're just biding our time before we fall again. Or worse, like I said, we live in this quiet allegiance to this identity and it impedes our allegiance to Christ. And that leads us into our last point here, which is verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, from whom there is no change or shadow of turning. By his own decision, he gave birth to us by the word of truth, so that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So the Father of lights gives good and perfect gifts. Now hold that in one hand. The God of the universe, the Father of lights, gives good and perfect gifts. And on the other hand, I want you to hold that this is the same God that sends trials our way. What does that make a trial? 
makes it a gift. Our God does not give temptations. He gives good gifts. The problem is, sometimes they don't seem like good gifts, such as trials. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Great illustration for that, you'll see. But this Father of Lights, first we've got to hit on this. What is this, this Father, Father of Lights? When this, this kind of phrase is used, and usually in the New Testament when the Father is, is referenced, a lot of times it's to bring about this, the uh, thought of creation. He is the Father of creation. He is the Father of the sun, the moon, the stars. He is the Father of light itself. Before there was a sun, He said, let there be light, and there was light. But he's also the father of redeemed people. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So the father of lights is... Yes, the father of creation, but he's also the father of the redeemed who are the lights of the new creation. In James' context here, he is talking about the new creation, not simply the old, not simply the physical, but rather James refers to God giving birth to us by the word of truth. And this is in contrast, by the way, to just a couple verses earlier where we, our desires, gave birth to sin and sin gave birth to death. Instead, when God decides to give birth, He gives birth through truth to life. That we would be the first fruits, He says, the first fruits of His creatures. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the first fruits of the new creation. Before the new heavens and the new earth are completed, before Christ returns, we have been pulled out of darkness and made children of light. We are not perfect yet. We are in the process of being sanctified. But make no mistake, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And you are the first fruits of the beautiful and eternal new creation that God is in the process of creating and fulfilling. And so we, as the new creation, await with eager anticipation for the return of Christ and the fulfillment of all that He has promised. And then James says, In God there is no variation or shadow of turning. See, every created thing must change. Even going back to the imagery that James paints with the lights, the lights themselves change with the seasons and the time. But God, who is the Father of lights does not change. In the same way, man must change. We must change from old creation into new creation. We must change from our allegiance to the world to the allegiance to Christ. We must change from a child of the devil to a child of the one true God. But our God does not need to change. Our gift giver does not change, which means he never stops giving good and perfect gifts to his children. And so when we are tempted to follow after our evil enticements, we need to resist 
the wicked gifts that pull us away from God and embrace the heavenly and perfect gifts that come from our Lord, the gift giver. We need to focus our thoughts and our hearts on the gift giver himself. That we would set our hearts on the one who has given us the eternal gift of salvation, the one who has made us new, and the one who generously and abundantly pours out good and perfect things on his children. I want to close with a point from Matthew chapter 7 to kind of express these these gifts here. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of Him? Parents know how to give, give good gifts. Some of them don't. I get that. But for parents, they know how to give good gifts. And good gifts are not just based on the wants of the child, but also on the needs, right? And because of that, sometimes these Gifts that are meant to meet needs are not appreciated until that uh, is not appreciated until much later. How much more then will our Father give us good gifts, the gifts that we need, not necessarily the gifts that we think we want? The true child of God grows to discern the true gift giver and how perfect those gifts actually are. Much like a child matures to learn about the good gifts from his parents. If you are unable or unwilling to make that kind of discernment, if the gifts you want from God are all on your terms, and you are consistently giving in to your evil desires, it might mean that your allegiance is to something other than Christ. It might mean that you don't actually know the good gift giver, that he's not actually your father. One of the marks of a true child of God, based on what we see here in James, is that you are aware and joyful in the good and perfect gifts from God, not seeking the wicked gifts that are a result of your own temptations and your own desires. So we as believers, right, we have a responsibility in this to be able to discern between the two. And I think most of us recognize that when we go after our own desires, we run into trouble pretty quickly. So my prayer is that as you continue to examine where your allegiance lies, who you are truly a child of, that you would look at the gifts, that you would look at the things that the Lord has given you, especially the things that you didn't want, but that you needed. 
We have all gone through trials that we needed that we certainly didn't want. And I think for those of us who are saved, we very much appreciate the fact that God put us through those trials, trials because we recognize the good gift giver and we recognize the folly of following after our desires and temptations. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I would ask, Lord, that you would continue to bless our time together as we move into fellowship, Lord, and, and that we would have uh, fruitful discussions, God, and getting to know one, each, one another as, uh, as your children. And Lord, I do pray that we, we, you, you give us trials, and they don't look like good gifts. In fact, most of the time, it's very easy for us to just get angry. It's very easy for us to turn the other way, to, to turn after the sins of the world, to turn after the desires of our heart, Lord. And I pray that we would recognize that when we do that, it's because we don't understand the gift giver. And the reason we tend to not understand the gift giver is because we want what we want. And we want you to bow to our desires instead of us bowing to you, Lord. And so I pray for those who are not saved, Lord, that by your word you would save them, that you would awaken their hearts and minds to what it means to be a true child of God. And for those of us who are saved, God, that you would grow us in our maturity, that we would joyfully endure trials, and that we would turn away from the temptations that come and, and tug at our hearts when we face those trials, Lord, that our hearts and minds, our focus would be always, each day, on you. We thank you for your son, Lord. We thank you for the gift of salvation, Lord, that is the most beautiful gift of all. And we pray this in your name. Amen.